0: Hello and welcome to our next episode of Perspectives, our School of History and Cultures Inclusivity podcast. Um, This is a podcast uh, that was set up as a community endeavor and we want to showcase the diversity of thinking and approaches to scholarship within our school, whilst also considering bigger questions around the institution itself. And actually that leads me really nicely into introducing our guest today. We have Dr. Matt Cole here, who is a historian of the University of Birmingham, and will be able to talk to us all about what he's researched and the foundations and the progression of the university over the years. As ever, we have the fabulous Dr Hannah Cornwell here with us. Hello, Hannah.
1: Hello. I'm very much looking forward to today's history lesson.
0: Me too, me too. And if I didn't introduce myself at the beginning, I'm Antonia. I am the Student Experience Officer for the School of History and Cultures, but quite wonderfully, I'm also working with Matt in some way or another, as he's the co-convener of the West Midlands History Masters, which I'm currently doing. So I'm, I'm well excited to have Matt here. So hello, Matt. Lovely to have you here. Hi. It would be really good to start off with you giving us a bit of an overview of how the University of Birmingham, which wasn't the University of Birmingham at the time, began, what, what it was, what its foundations were, and taking us from there.
2: The the very origins of the University of Birmingham are very significant in examining inclusiveness and openness and equity of treatment of staff and students and engagement with the rest of the community. Because the university began with a college called Mason College, founded in 1875 in the city centre, actually in a building which the university still occupied and used until nearly 100 years later. And that was subsequently merged with another college in the city centre called Queen's College, a medical college. Now the thing about Mason College was that it was founded as a deliberately open and accessible institution. Its founder, Josiah Mason, was a scientist and entrepreneur, but he was also a person who, for example, established an orphanage. He had a great sense of social responsibility and the foundation document for the university that he established when he was Mason College said in a curiously modern phraseology that there is no restriction in the admission of students as regards sex, creed, or birthplace. Now although those terms had a slightly different meaning probably for the the audience of the mid-Victorian period, it indicates an openness partly based on uh, non-conformist beliefs about human equality and about the prospects for improvement of people through education that continued with Mason College and entered into the spirit of the University of Birmingham and it subsequently uh, became that. The uh, college, for example, by the 1890s had recruited about uh, half of its students from the local female population, about 92 students in the 1890s were women and about 102 were men. Now there was some difference between the kind of programs they were taking, there was some difference in the ambitions they had, but the very idea of educating women was a actually was quite a shocking thing at the time. The headmistress of the main local girls secondary school in the 1890s, the high school for girls, a woman called Miss Creek used to tell her pupils that she disapproved of the university because it was a sink of iniquity, because girls would go to the university to sit in lecture theatres with men. And that in itself was considered sufficiently radical to actually deter some people from association with with the project. So in principle, the institution was always open, but this was a matter of practice as well because the college and later the university had to recruit from the locality. It was unlikely to recruit from the sort of elite classes that went to Oxford and Cambridge, two of the only four other established universities at the time in England. And uh, also, it had no residential accommodation. So, it was going to recruit people who were day students, who were coming in for practical courses that were going to give them prospects of employment. And that meant that its recruitment was not a reflection of Victorian Birmingham by any means. It was predominantly what you might call petty bourgeois. There are a lot of managers, retailers, uh, some entrepreneurs amongst the parents of the the students who came. But In a sense, although that actually got a little bit of criticism from some people, particularly on the council, who wanted the the college and then the university to be more of a, a democratic project, the fact that any such expectation was made of a university was in itself quite remarkable. The fact that people would complain at a university because it wasn't working class enough was almost unknown in the Victorian era, and it shows you what the expectations of the University of Birmingham were, and that's what's been true ever since, that its principles and its aims have been unusually radical, progressive and open. Its challenges have changed and have been greater, I would largely say, uh, since the Victorian era than they were at the time. So uh, what we have to examine here is not so much what the aims of the project were, but what the challenges were and how it managed to deal with them.
0: That's so fascinating and I wonder actually how many of our our listeners, including myself and Hannah, knew about Mason College and the university's beginnings. So as you say, it's based on something radical and open and indeed based within its locality, working class or like you mentioned, petty bourgeois. You had various people coming to the university. How did that shift and when did it become a university? How did these challenges and those people and the programme shift?
2: Mason uh, College became a university itself in 1899 but that was in preparation for the founding of the University of Birmingham which took place in 1900. There was a big change when it became the University of Birmingham. There was a change of leadership, you had a new structure, you have the Chancellor Joseph Chamberlain uh, leading it, you had a new principal, a man called Oliver Lodge who'd been brought in from Liverpool and you, uh, you, you had a new curriculum. Whereas Mason College had been a science college, a large number of medical students, a good number of engineering students, I mean, a a curriculum of Dozens of subjects, in fact, but mostly in the area we would now call a, a science faculty. And when the university was started, you had music, you had accountancy and commerce, you had a department of brewing. Engineering was split up into chemical engineering and uh, civil engineering and later oil engineering. So the curriculum became much more diverse, but that maintained in some ways the more mainstream, if you like, recruitment Of students because these were people very often looking for what we would now call employability. They wanted an experience that was embedded in a university liberal education environment, but which provided practical training skills and outcomes that made them able to capitalize on it as people who needed to go out and make a living. The idea that you had to work to get an income was something that was far better understood by both the leadership like Joseph Chamberlain of the university and of the students of the university than it perhaps was at the established universities at the time. So the curriculum and the purpose of the university made it more open than it would otherwise have been. But it's recruitment also partly because of Joseph Chamberlain's um, experience as a colonial secretary and as a a great imperial figure uh, experience, which in many ways is uh, rightly contentious, for the university that actually had a, a rather progressive and positive outcome because he was able to support and encourage recruitment to the university from across the globe. There were students who came from the Far East, from uh, Africa, from India, from North America. One only has to look at the recruitment registers to the university, but also at photographs and footage of students in the early stages of the university uh, to know that they were coming from a a huge range of uh, national and ethnic backgrounds to explore this diverse and new curriculum. And in some ways, uh, the curriculum was part of what attracted those students to the university. So it has always been, uh, and indeed, Joseph Chamberlain took some criticism from West Midlands employers about this. It's always been a place where we recruited lots of overseas students, and we had a, a rich environment. of of experience to exchange between students and between students and staff so the national and ethnic diversity of the university really began at that stage but it continued to be a university that treated men and women equally at least in terms of giving them access to the courses for example the guild had a female president before women were able to vote in parliamentary elections. Interestingly, there's very little remark about this in student commentary or in other records of the university. This is regarded as completely expected of the university. In an age when women's role in education and in society at large was still highly contentious, the University of Birmingham had made its decision that for them that question was over. The other feature of the university that's worth thinking about in its diversity is the fact that it was, it was a secular university. It was not attached to any one denomination. It was not attached to a particular church or even a, a religion or indeed any religion. And that became something which in in subsequent years made it a more open atmosphere and made it able to continue with its broad recruitment. The class, finally, the class character of the university remained firmly within the West Midlands, mainly its recruitment up until the 1950s, but also from a more mainstream background than most universities. Now, that's in those days, as in some senses today, that's not a terribly high bar to jump over. But for example the University of Birmingham in the 1930s was still the second highest on the list of state school recruiting undergraduate programs. The University of Sheffield had slightly a slightly larger proportion of state school students, about 60%, 58% at Birmingham. The average for uh, English universities was 36%. And that gives you the idea that it was relatively rare for state school pupils to go to University, But it was not rare in Birmingham and it was not rare for students in the West Midlands. And that, again, is an expectation which, although national events have sent the tide in the other direction in a lot of ways, that has been a, a target of the university since then and
1: to the present day. I think you actually partly answered a question I was formulating uh, while you were speaking, because I was really curious about this openness and locality on the one hand of the original foundation, and as you mentioned, the introduction of international students with Chamberlain and how those sort of potential tensions were dealt with and played out for the university in terms of locality versus overseas students, international students, but also, I suppose, in the the different social perspectives of Mason College and, and the university, I was particularly struck by that headmistress's reference of the sink of iniquity in terms of it being a bad thing that genders nicks in the lecture theatre, as opposed to obviously the founding ideas of, of Mason College being that this is open to everyone and that's a, a positive thing. And I was just wondered if you had anything further to say about those potential tensions of perspective or expectations for the university.
2: Well, the things that have presented challenges to the university in maintaining this philosophy, if you like, of higher education have often been national trends. Expansion, for example, which was required for not only for democratic and progressive reasons, but also for universities to uh, remain financially viable all the way through the 20th century, meant that the university had to recruit from outside the West Midlands. It had to provide accommodation for those people. By the 1960s, you've got a situation where students are being funded by mandatory student grants, which, of course, allows many people who otherwise wouldn't have got to university to uh, have access. But it also means that university becomes uh, less of a community phenomenon and more of a national phenomenon involving students traveling from around the country to what of course was becoming a very reputable and uh, competitive university to get into and of course that tends to alter the character of the students who were able to come there, resources begin to play a part in who is able to get to the university and actually its class character begins to become narrower as you go into the 1960s and 1970s and indeed quite a lot of working class students testimony during the period uh, confirms this. Notoriously, Victoria Wood, when she was a student in the drama department, remembered the university being what she called a Ponzi place because she felt she was surrounded by southern middle-class students. She was willing However, to receive an honorary doctorate from the university and say some nice things about us as well. But it was a reasonable commentary on the state of the university's recruitment at that point. So the nationalisation, if you like, of the education system and its expansion presented challenges to these original founding principles. But the university has continued to be open. Its secular nature, for example, allowed it to be one of the first universities to have an Islamic society, which was addressed in early days by Malcolm X when he came to the university in 1965. It was also behind the university's commitment to try to draw in a cohort of students, able students from unrepresented or low-represented backgrounds in higher education through the Access to Birmingham scheme. Uh, Now, this is one of the first outreach schemes in the era of tuition fees and the absence of grants that try to meet the challenge of national events in order to get closer to the original principles of the university those principles very modern very forward-looking at the time have always been like any worthwhile political principle a bit of a holy grail you will never quite get there but the journey is the thing that has value and the university of birmingham continues on that journey
0: Thank you for that, Matt. And a really great question there, Hannah, as well. I think that was really important to bring up. You've said something really interesting about the foundations of the university and how that has not necessarily constantly been able to be met in its growth and in its progression. And I know for some of our listeners, that's going to be a really key question. It's all well and good that we talk about how good it was in its foundations and its aims, but what, what is it doing now? And did you struggle with that when you were researching it? Or is that part and parcel of being a historian? You've got to take the good and the bad and the, the objective and the <laughs> subjective.
2: Yeah, the thing about being a local historian is you're always dealing with the familiar in some respect. Even my other research has always been on modern political affairs. So, you, you know, you have sympathies and reactions which are partisan in the context you're looking at. Therefore, I always think that challenge is there. I mean, it's a good challenge because what it does is it makes you look at evidence, makes you say, okay, am I saying this because I think it or am I saying it because there's some evidence for it? And you make yourself argue the other side and say, look, University of Birmingham is a middle class university, like most Russell Group universities. The question is, does it try and do anything about that? Well, it does. It recruits, what, 600 students a year under the A to B scheme. It's not going to transform the content of the university. But it is a way of the university saying, here's the important thing to the people who don't fall into the A to B category. You know what? These people have a right to be here. And normally they wouldn't get in and it wouldn't be because of their failing. It would be because of the way society works. And that seems to me, that message seems to me the radical bit of it. And I do know the support given to A to B students is good, not only in applying and entering, but in their course through the university there's an awareness that having arrived as an A to a- B student makes you different and in some ways potentially vulnerable so you have to be prepared to accept weaknesses but you have to you, know, you look at evidence I suppose if you're you know if you're the kind of person who's looking at plague villages in the, in another hemisphere maybe it's great because you don't you're not going to get caught up in any preferences one way or another but historians always have preferences they always have a hypothesis You know, the thing we have our strongest bias towards is our own hypothesis, whatever it is. And you're bound to start with an expectation. I'd be interested if you disagree, Hannah, but nobody starts an inquiry without thinking, you know what, I think this is probably the answer, but I'm just going to
1: check. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important message for for all students and and colleagues. But, you know, if we're involved in any period of history is that we are going to have our own assumptions and preferences, however conscious or unconscious we are of them. But we can only do what the evidence allows us to do. We have to be careful of pushing it.
2: It's interesting you say that. I suppose dealing with something towards which you have a a loyalty and you know, my loyalty to the University of Birmingham is pretty strong. I've not only worked for 20 years, my wife's worked for even longer, and both my parents went to it, and they met here and got married. So (laughs) it's a hard thing for me to have a go at it. Maybe in a way the partisanship is so obvious that you feel exposed. You know someone's going to turn around and say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Where's your evidence? And Then you think, "Hmm, I better have the evidence to hand.
0: That's actually a very good point. And I'm really grateful that you took some time to tell us about your insight and the way that you've had to work with it. Because like you say, you do have a loyalty to the university because of its relationship with your past and with your parents and with your family. But also it does feel like you're being exposed. So you need to be ready with the evidence, ready to go, no, 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 it's not just because of this. It's because I've looked this up. I'm glad that you highlighted earlier when we touched on Joseph Chamberlain that you you know you said yes where it was a contentious point his international reach and his colonial work that that was contentious that was potentially problematic but actually we need to consider in this context as well and it it was actually for the university's growth quite a positive thing and and I know quite a lot of our students certainly those in the history department have been thinking about Joseph Chamberlain quite a lot recently and and the difficulty with having a clock tower called old Joe in the centre of campus but yeah I know a lot of our students spoke about this with Michelle in the race working group event that we had and, and they were really fascinated by that and I think Correct me if I'm wrong, both of you, but at least offer your viewpoint. I think there's something really interesting in making sure that we understand as best we can our history and our heritage and what the university is maybe built on, what its aims were, not just straight up decrying Joseph Chamberlain and ridding us of all all links. I'm not saying that there weren't contentious and problematic issues, that there absolutely were I'm glad that you've mentioned that because I think that's something that we need to take forward in considering you know, our university and the place that we do feel so strongly and passionate about most of the time.
2: I mean, there's a little quotation I could have used. There's a, a letter to her school written by a student in 1915. You know, students used to write back to their school magazine and say, come to the University of Birmingham, it's fantastic. And Obviously, one has to take these a bit in, uh, in context. But one of the things she says, unprompted, is... One of the really great things about the university is it's full of people from all sorts of different parts of the world—the brothers and sisters in learning, she calls them—you know, people from every race and nation on earth. The interesting tale of it is, she says, this shows what the influence of English culture is in the world. So there is a bit of patronising—we are giving the rest of the world the benefits of William Shakespeare and, and, and modern oil engineering and, and parliamentary government, which is, of course when it was just patronising, that was patronising bit of the empire. The empire's impact ranges from hideous military occupation and racist administration, to economic exploitation, to patronising development, to actual genuine support. Chamberlain is involved in, in pretty much all of those. I mean, the whole thing of the Boer War. See, if you'd asked any number of people what the empire was, if you ask uh, Edward Elgar what the empire meant, he wouldn't have said the same thing as Cecil Rhodes. If you'd ask George Cadbury, you know he he supported the first Boer War, but then opposed the second Boer War. Some of the people that opposed the Boer War in England opposed it because they supported the Boers and they thought the Boers, as as poor little independent farmers, should be left alone. You know that was part of Lloyd George's logic. It was not just that he didn't like empire; he was suspicious of empire. But he also thought, you know, independent agrarian entrepreneurs in other people's countries should be allowed to get on with it. And some of the people supporting the British supported them because they were fighting the Afrikaners. So Gandhi supported the British in the Boer War because you know we, we were not as racist as the other side. The question of empire is a it is a complex one. The single simple question, would we find it morally acceptable now? is is dead easy. No, we wouldn't. Its founding principles and the way it ran meant it had to be racist, at least in its impact, if not in its ideology. Within that, there's a whole load of other things going on, which are actually considerably varied. And in the end, every last foot soldier of the British Empire was involved in the broad assumptions of the British Empire and would probably have actively supported them, well did in the 1900 election. Huge numbers of people, particularly in Birmingham, went and voted for a war to maintain British rule in South Africa. You know, it's a bit easy to point to the leaders as the only people engaging this. This is a set of cultural assumptions that went all the way up to the post-war period. People doing empire day in primary schools. Every primary school teacher would be having kids dress up as different parts of the world. Now, were they doing it in celebration? Were they doing it in mockery? Were they doing it in glory? at our control of other people. It's really difficult to say. It's like taking the poppy or the Union Jack and saying, well, what does it mean? The Union Jack is used by the Queen and the flag of St George is used by football supporters, you know, it's used by people on celebratory days, but it's also used by far-right racist political groups. Yeah. The poppy, to some people is a, sign of, is a sign of empire originally, you know, set up in 1919 to, to celebrate the fact that the empire had won and was still safe, celebrating militarism for some people. You know, the bravery of troops It's also a celebration of sacrifice. It's also the recognition of peace and the value of peace. As far as the Second World War is concerned, it's a celebration of sacrifice against fascism. Uh, for some people, it's just the memory of their, their loved ones that they lost. And now it's applied to any war you like to mention. The word empire, if you smash it with a toffee hammer, there's a lot of things in there.
0: I know we've come away from the university in some ways, but I'm really grateful that you were happy to go into that and discuss that. And you're right, you ask any one person and there'll be something
1: different to say. Both a tangential point, but Matt was making me think about that and what he was just saying about the cultural complexities of both empire and education and how, at least particularly in my experience of higher education in the UK that there is or has been particularly in my discipline of privileging of certain types of knowledge which goes back to I suppose what you were saying with that letter about what people are taking from a British education but also I think there's often a problem with this, assuming that once people get to university they understand what it is um, but actually people coming from different backgrounds if they're first generation it's a very different world and landscape and I think sometimes it can be very exclusive or elitist without necessarily intending to be so but it's because we're, we're used to frameworks of knowledge. The more, more I teach I get concerned about sort of I suppose the rigid structures of academia. We expect people to communicate in a certain way and use certain language which is enforcing a particular framework on people. That's not even a question it's me just putting out something to ponder and I don't really know what we should be doing within our disciplines in a school and I often find myself telling students about having to use academic vernacular and don't use elisions and contractions because that's not how we write in academic writing but at the same time that's how we speak and how we communicate colloquially and why does it really matter if you say don't rather than do not.
2: It's easy to imagine that for all the people who sign up in September their life to that point has been an apprenticeship for for university and it hasn't in a lot of cases. It's an unexpected departure.
0: So when I was a student I was a student ambassador for outreach and recruitment And I had the pleasure of working tangentially with the A to B side of things. I didn't work directly on it. A lot of the people who work directly on it are people who have actually already gone through a scheme or a similar scheme. I think it's a really positive step to trying to keep the university aiming for the things that it was initially set up for. And and one of the things I did in outreach and recruitment was work on the year 10 summer school, which is a similar programme. A lot of students who do the year 10 summer school then do... A to B. And it was about making it available to everybody. If they're not getting here beforehand, it's definitely through no failings of their own. But we do need to be aware that once people get here, they haven't, as you put, Matt, been an uh, apprenticeship for university, though the um, education system that we are in right now is a bit of a rat race that encourages that. Um, Actually, a lot of students, I think, benefit from being aware of the structures that are rightly or wrongly in place. We've spoken about all of these different things, its initial aims, difficulties of reconciling one aspect of the university's aims with where it is now or with the people who engaged with it. What do you think we could continue to do? As an historian who's, who's looked into the University of Birmingham, you've highlighted that there is a bit of a, you know, like you say, the Holy Grail aim of inclusivity, of, of openness. And as the university becomes successful and fits in with national aims, it, it's, it perhaps starts to lose some of its initial drive in that direction. What could we continue to do? And I know we maybe us three sat on this Zoom meeting, probably wouldn't be able to execute it ourselves. Is there something, is there something we can encourage the university to carry on with? Is it the pathways or the access to Birmingham stuff or is it already happening and we just need to be celebrating it more?
2: Well, it's difficult to say uh, what universities should be planning to do in the next year or two, given the difficult circumstances we're in and the uncertainties they create. But A civic university, which is what the University of Birmingham was set up as, is a university which engages with the outside world in in the work it does in in offering higher education. And the University of Birmingham will doubtless continue to do that and is finding new ways of doing it, in fact. It continues to offer a distinctive curriculum, giving engagement with employment. Think of the, the drama village set up a few years ago at uh, Sally Oak uh, that works with the BBC. It, it offers facilities for an engagement with the, the general public. Uh, the Sports Centre, for example, a stunning £55 million development that offers the opportunity for the public to use state-of-the-art sporting facilities. And, of course, A to B will continue as a university uh, distinctive project offering an engagement with higher education not just in Birmingham actually but encouraging higher education for the population of Birmingham from from a number of providers. But uh, perhaps the, the two most interesting things that are coming up are of course the partnership with the Commonwealth Games which will be a huge global engagement. But taking us right back to the start of the university, its location in Edmond Street, in the, the old Mason College. We're going to have the exchange open later this year, which will be set in a, uh, a very grand building built under the leadership of Neville Chamberlain as the site of the municipal bank but which will now be a site for engagement with the public which will provide a venue for a range of institutes and events that will show the public what we're doing, that will allow the public to take part in what we're doing, that will give the university a face in the city physically within a stone's throw of the uh, original site of the university. Birmingham University is facing struggles and challenges like all universities at the moment and and all public institutions. It faced them in trying to offer its distinctive version of higher education throughout its, its history. Let's hope it can manage to do
0: that with these plans in the challenging times that, that are to come. I think we've had a, an incredible conversation here with you, Matt. We've started with the university, its origins, we've moved through what the university has had to come up against and to reconcile. Hannah, thank you so much for your brilliant questions. A huge thank you to you, Matt, for coming along and talking to us both.
2: Thanks for listening.